Welcome to another podcast episode of the Been There, Read That program. I'm your host, Nathan Batty. I don't know where you live, but I live in Indiana, and it is cold right now. The windshield factor this morning is in the negatives. I think it's supposed to be like negative 30 degrees tomorrow. Um, it's cold. I'm down here in my basement, and it is a cold day. So if you hear my voice shaking at some point, it's probably just because I'm freezing to death. So, so here's what we have on the docket for today's episode. We're going to talk about some reading tips, some reading suggestions to keep it in mind, and then we're going to do some discussion about our reading program from Paradise to the Promised Land by T. Desmond Alexander. We'll talk more about that momentarily, and then we're going to do some brief introductions to some books that came in the mail this week. Uh, we'll call it the mailbag, and then we have a kind of a discussion topic. I'd like to get some feedback from our listeners as we close out. So we'll start with the reading tips. I encourage guys when they buy their own book, now you can't do this when you're borrowing a book from someone, but when you buy your own book, feel free to mark in it. Now, I know that's kind of a no-no in a lot of people's mind, and that may sound strange coming from me since I am a book dealer. I would say the exception to this is if it's a rare book, you don't mark in rare books, okay? But if it's a paperback book especially, uh, if it's a book that you can is easily available uh, I encourage people to mark in them. The reason for that is because you're going to read something that you find interesting, and later you're going to go, want to go back and find it, and you're going to have a difficult time doing that if you have not made marks. So I buy highlighters by, like, the case, the 36-count case. I have highlighters all over my office, my desk, my, ch my reading chairs, upstairs. Wherever I'm going to be with a book, there's always a highlighter readily available. And as I go through, I, I mark uh, with a fine mark, parts that I think are interesting. If I think there's a very important point that I want to come back to, I mark it boldly with the highlighter. I may even underline it with a pen. In the margins of my books, when I uh, disagree with what the author has said, I note that. I just write there, disagree, and here's why. And the reason I do that is because one day I'll be dead, and somebody will inherit my library or get some of my books, and they will pick up a book that is probably going to be a mixed bag. Most books are mixed bags. And as they read through it, they can see, ah, Nathan disagreed with this. Uh, they may not fully understand why I'm disagreeing, but they recognize he disagreed with this. Maybe I should give this some more thought. I'll give out a brief explanation. Um, also, if I'm reading along and it kind of sparks a thought, and there's a rabbit trail I want to chase down, I'll write myself a little note in the margin about how to think about this material towards a different end goal. Uh, another thing that's a good practice to do is to have note cards on hand, especially if you're going to use the material you're doing research uh, for a presentation or for an article that you're writing. Keep your stack of note cards or a little notebook on hand so that you can not only write down things that were interesting, but as you have those little rabbit trails that come to mind, take a minute, pause, and go through and write that out so that you can have a better discussion or understanding when you go back to it later. So those are just a few little uh, reading tips I think that are really helpful uh, and help you think more critically about what you're reading. Another reading tip I would encourage you to, to start using is to start asking questions whenever you read a book. 
Um, ask, is, has this author proved his point? What's the evidence that he's bringing that I should believe this? Is he uh, being credible? Is this biblically based? Uh, what, how, how might I use this material? How might I teach this material? What's some applications that I can use in bringing this to my life? Uh, things along that nature. Always be asking questions. I grew up in a family where we constantly asked questions. We were encouraged to ask questions. We used the Granville Tyler workbooks that basically Granville Tyler was saying, here, read three or four chapters from the Bible and then answer 40 questions about it. And I've kind of taken for granted in my life the concept of asking questions of the material that you're reading. That's what I was trained to do all my life. But I've learned that a lot of people haven't been trained to do that. That's a very good practice. I would encourage you to think of questions and try to think critically about what you're reading. Okay, we want to move along now to our reading program. Last week, I assigned out chapters 7 through 9 of T. Desmond Alexander's book, From Paradise to the Promised Land. I'm reading that with two groups of guys on Monday nights, and I thought, I'll just start kind of giving out those assignments, and if our reading, if our listeners want to follow along and do the reading as well, you're welcome to pick up a copy of that book at a book at you know, Amazon.com or somewhere, and you can read along in the chapters with us, and I'll give you some kind of highlights and pointers along the way. And so I want to do a little bit of review on that material this week. We didn't actually cover 7 through 9 in our discussion. We actually did 7 through 8. And the reason for that is because, though it wasn't a tremendous amount of reading material page-wise, it's really saturated with a number of fascinating ideas that bore more detailed discussion than what we were able to do had we done all three chapters. Uh, last night our discussion took an hour and 15 minutes in our second group. Uh, typically it's about a 45 minute to one hour discussion and just by reading two chapters is an hour and 15 minutes and we gone all three there's no telling how long we would have been there. It wouldn't have been near as profitable. But basically in chapter 7 T. Desmond Alexander in From Paradise to the Promised Land does a couple of different things. Number one, he shows that the Pentateuch should be viewed as a single unit. By the Pentateuch, I mean the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy. And it's easy to overlook because a lot of times in our daily reading, we read one chapter, two or three chapters a day, and it takes us you know, a couple months to get through Genesis through Deuteronomy. However, you need to t take time to look at that as a single unit. Think of a, a single book with five chapters. One of the things that he does to help you see this kind of big picture view is he shows that there are shared motifs throughout these books. For instance, in Genesis chapter 15 verse 25, Jacob asks, or he commands his children to take his bones with them when they leave Egypt one day. Okay, we don't see his descendants leaving Egypt until Exodus chapters 12 and 13. And in Exodus 13 and verse 19, it points out that they picked up Jacob's bones and they took his bones with them. So you have a story being introduced in Genesis, but you don't have the conclusion until you get to Exodus 13 verse 19. Another example of this. In Exodus chapter 29, Moses set the priest aside for special service. He, he's given instructions about how to do that. However... We don't see the setting apart actually take place in detail until Leviticus 9. And so Exodus 29 and Leviticus 9 are meant to be read together. They're part of the same story. Well, one more example for you that he gives. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, the Bible writer anticipates the death of Moses. However, you have to go all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 34, the last chapter of the Pentateuch, to see the death of Moses actually take place. 
So when you read all, when you consider all these points together, Genesis through Deuteronomy is a single book consisting of five chapters, so to speak. And we need to think of it more in terms of that unit. Another book, by the way, that is really good at drawing this principle is a book called A Reading Moses Seeing Jesus. And the author's last name is Postel. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of that. You can get it on Kindle on Amazon for like $1.99 or $2.99. Awesome book. Really good book that you ought to pick up from Reading Moses Seeing Jesus by Postel. That's P-O-S-T-E-L-L, I believe. Um, one of the things that Alexander pointed out in a footnote was an article that he had written called Genesis to Kings in the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. The New Dictionary of Biblical Theology is printed by InterVarsity Press. Um, I haven't dealt with it much. I had it on my shelf, and when I saw that he noted his own article, I picked it up and I read his article, and the article was called Genesis to Kings. And what it's doing is showing that though the, the Pentateuch is a single unit, it's kind of volume one of a two-volume set, if you will, that runs all the way through Second Kings. And so, although we need to recognize the Pentateuch as one book with five chapters, we need to recognize it as the first volume of a two-volume set that tells the whole history of Israel. I thought that was a very helpful article as well, and I'd recommend checking that out if you're able to. One of the major points in chapter 7, kind of overarching, that he's wanting to set the stage for is to show how when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the story of God's people from that point forward are trying to get back to the state that was previously enjoyed in Genesis 1-3. through And that's going to be kind of an overarching theme of the rest of the book. Okay, in chapter 8, he does five major things. And we'll talk about those individually. Number one, he begins by showing that Genesis 1-3 through needs to be considered as a unit together within the book of Genesis, and it's very foundational. He says it's almost impossible to overemphasize how important these three chapters are to the rest of the Bible. I tend to agree with him. One of the things he points out, and I think this is a really strong point that bears our consideration, he argues that Genesis 1-3 through has been hijacked by the creation-evolution debate. I want you to think about that for just a moment. I believe that it has been hijacked somewhat. And what he means by that, and what I mean by that, is that typically whenever we talk about Genesis 1 through 3, we're talking about creation and evolution. Now, evolution's only been around for about a century and a half, and the Bible has been here for a couple thousand years, and so the likelihood that the Genesis 1 and 2 was written to combat evolution is not good. Okay. Now, that's not to say that evolution can... It can be upheld in Genesis 1-2. I don't believe it can. I believe Genesis 1-2 argues for an early creation. However, the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 was not to combat evolution. It doesn't support evolution, but it wasn't written to combat evolution. I think we lose focus of that because when we go to Genesis 1-2, we just go there to talk about creation versus evolution. It has a much bigger picture purpose in mind. It has different purpose in general in mind. It's to lay the foundation for everything that comes later, the end of the Bible story. And one of the ways of seeing that point is by recognizing that we begin in the garden and we end in the garden. And by that I mean Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is about life in the garden. Revelation 20, 21, 22 is about life in the eternal garden. And the Bible is bookended by garden paradise scenes 
filled with God's people who are image bearers. Okay, enough on that. Number two, Alexander points out that we have two accounts of creation. You have the Genesis 1 uh, through Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 account, and then you have the Genesis chapter 2 account. And a lot of people look at that and they think that there is some contradiction in the Bible. It must have been written by two different people. Why do we have two accounts of creation? And he does a good job of showing they're not contradictory accounts. They actually harmonize very well. The first account in Genesis 1 through Genesis 2 verse 3 is meant to show that God is transcendent. He is all-powerful. He is the creative God. And it places the focus on who God is. It's revealing about our God. The reason God takes six days to create things is to tell us some about God so we understand more about him. And then in the second chapter, Genesis 2 verse 4 on through the end of it, it shows about how that transcendent God actually wants to have a personal relationship with his creation, in particular mankind. That's very good helpful material, bears more thought and some further study. The third thing that he wants to do is to discuss how the Garden of Eden was the first temple in the Bible. Now, that may sound strange to you, but he makes a very strong case for it. And if you want to do some further reading on this, he wrote another book called From From Eden to the New Jerusalem. That's what it's called. From Eden to the New Jerusalem by T. Desmond Alexander. Um, That is not an introductory read. This is for advanced readers. So, you you know, it's kind of weighty material. And there is some, there are some meat and bones. There are some bones in there. So I don't give it just a blanket recommendation to anybody. You need to have some good Bible background to you. But anyway, some further reading there. I'll share with you on page 124, and we're reading from the third edition again. He gives five points about how or why he's arguing for Eden being the first temple. Number one, the Lord God walks in Eden as he later does in the tabernacle comparing Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, and Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 15. Number two, Eden and the latter sanctuaries are entered from the east and guarded by cherubim. You can notice this in Genesis 3, verse 24, and Exodus 25, verse 18 through 22, as well as 1 Kings chapter 6, verses 23 through 29. Number three, the tabernacle menorah, or lampstand, possibly symbolizes the tree of life. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, Exodus 25, verses 31 through 35. Number four, The river flowing from Eden in Genesis 2 verse 10 resembles Ezekiel chapter 47 verses 1 through 12, which envisages a river flowing from a future Jerusalem temple and bringing life to the Dead Sea. Number five, golden onyx mentioned in Genesis 2 verse 11 through 12 are used extensively to decorate the latter sanctuaries and priestly garments. Exodus chapter 25 verse 7 verse 11 verse 17 verse 31. Gold, in particular, is associated with the divine presence. Okay? So he makes, a, I think, a strong case. There's a whole lot more that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg of why he's arguing that Eden was a garden temple. And in regards to that, if Eden is a garden temple, then we ought to find priests serving in the temple, right? And that's exactly what we find in Adam and Eve. They were commissioned to do royal priestly type of work. One of the things that he points out, I thought this was a really strong point as well, Uh, man was commanded to serve and to keep the garden, or to guard the garden. And those two words, it's the Hebrew word ebad and semar, when they're used independently, they can mean a variety of things, but when they're used in conjunction with one another to serve and to keep, those are priestly terms. There's a number of places, for instance, Numbers chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, 
Numbers 8, verse 26, Numbers 18, verses 5 through 6, and a host of other passages. When you have those two words, to serve and to keep, combined together, is speaking of priestly action. And what we see is Adam and Eve were commissioned as priests to tend for the garden temple of God and later temples like the tabernacle, the temple itself, and even the heavenly temple that's described in the book of Revelation, they're all drawing imagery that is based here in the first three chapters in the first garden temple. Really fascinating material. I hope you'll pick up a copy of From Paradise to Promised Land and get your introduction, have your appetite whetted for a major Bible theme. Another major theme that he picks up on is the story of Babel that takes place in Genesis 11. I remember talking to Brother Ron Quarter a while back. We were at a, a study down in Shreveport, Louisiana, and he said one of the most underrated scenes in all the Bible is the story of Babel. And I tend to agree with him. I, I took that to heart, and it really is an overarching theme. Uh, we refer to it as the city of Babel, but the word Babel which is also designated as a place in the Bible, is used over 200 times in the Old Testament, and only in Genesis 11 is it translated Babel. Everywhere else it's Babylon. And what's actually in Genesis 11 is the first Babylon. There's three Babylons in the Bible. There's the Babylon of Genesis 11, there's the Babylon of Daniel's day that conquers the southern kingdom, and then there's the Babylon in the book of Revelation. What we have is Babylon being set up as an archetypal figure that will be used throughout the rest of the Bible to symbolize God's enemies. In other words, it's a type of all the evil governments and kingdoms that will come later throughout the Bible. So when we get to the book of Revelation, we shouldn't be thinking of a literal physical kingdom of Babylon being reestablished, but it is being used symbolically to speak of a kingdom and city who is opposed to God in every way, a rebellion against what they were created to be. Uh, later on in chapter 8, he also goes into some New Testament ties. Very helpful stuff, but uh, we've said enough about his book already. Pick it up and get your copy and read along with us, if you will. This next week, we're going to read chapters 9 and 10, and Lord willing, we'll discuss that next week in our, our podcast. Okay, uh, I want to talk about a little bit of other reading that I did this week, just kind of for some further clarification. I'm continuing to read Sam Storms with a group of guys. We're reading Sam Storms' book called Kingdom Come. And this is not a book that I give a full endorsement to. It's definitely meat and bones and probably more bones than meat. Uh, we have some good discussion. It's, it's a good forum to, to have some points of truth brought up and then also points of error. How are we going to combat that? Having said that, he references George Eldon Ladd, who has written quite a bit on the kingdom of God. George Eldon Ladd is a historical premillennialist. And when you hear the word premillennialist, that throws up a red flag, and it should. Historical premillennialists are not as wrong as dispensational premillennialists. Historical premillennialists recognize the nature of the kingdom. They're right on the concept of the kingdom. They just believe that one day Jesus is going to come back and reign literally on the earth for a thousand years. I reject that concept. However, they do recognize the church being the kingdom of God. Dispensationalists believe that the church was an afterthought. It was never the plan of God, and the Bible is all about physical Israel being restored one day. Historical premillennialists reject that. So George Allen Ladd is a good guy in the concept of the kingdom, and that's what he's being referenced here. As first introduced to George Eldon Ladd by Brother Doug Edwards. Brother Doug Edwards 
wrote a book called Drawing Water from the Wells of Salvation. If you have not bought a copy and read that, you really need to get his book, Drawing Water from the Wells of Salvation, and read it. And it's, it's about the kingdom. It's about prophecy fulfillment. There's a lot of good stuff. If you want a copy of Brother Doug's book, you can pick it up in our bookstore at christianresearcher.com. But one of the concepts that Ladd and Doug Edwards teach, which is brought up by Storms this week, is the concept of the kingdom of God representing the reign of God. That's a little bit different than what we typically think of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is physically manifest in the church. It was physically manifest in Israel in the Old Testament, but the kingdom concept really refers to the reign of God, and God has always had a reign amongst his people. Uh, Another book that I I was doing some reading in this week, I'm doing some preaching out of 1 Corinthians on Wednesday nights here at the Rockville Road Church of Christ. By the way, if you want to follow along with some of that, you can go to our website, IndieChurchOfChrist.com, and you can download and listen to those sermons. But anyway, in studying 1 Corinthians, I found one book that's really helpful. It's called Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes by Kenneth E. Bailey. Kenneth E. Bailey is a unique writer. He lived in the Middle East for 40 years. He taught the Bible in Hebrew and Aramaic for 40 years, again, and he has a different kind of perspective, and he's really good at structure in Bible writings. He's very familiar with Hebrew structure, Hebrew Hebrew poetry, and things of that nature, and he's demonstrating that there are a lot of chiastic buildups in the book of 1 Corinthians, and you need to really pay attention to the structure. And he has some good commentary insights in general. I feel like I've really enjoyed reading his book, but the really gold value of it is in his structure. Uh, I've really been enjoying that. I just wanted to share that briefly. Um, I'm going to do kind of like a weekly delivery, weekly mailbag. Every day, the postman shows up at my door and he's carrying books. Because, again, I buy books, I sell books. Uh, If you want to look at some good books, you can go to christianresearcher.com and you can find a lot of books that we have and we recommend there. Uh, My mailman has to hate me, or I should say mail lady. She has to hate me because... Every day she's bringing me books, uh, but it's exciting. I get books in all the time, and whenever I get books, if it's a new book that I haven't read before, I try to sit down and read the first chapter and the last chapter, at least get a feel for the book to see if the book is worth reading or if it's just you know time to get rid of it. This is the way I investigate books. And so a couple of the books that I've gotten in this week, one was Practicing Proverbs by Richard Mayhew. That's Practicing Proverbs by Richard Mayhew. Uh, I've read into this a bit, about 50 pages so far. It's a short book. It's pretty practical in Proverbs. You know, it's hard to go wrong in the book of Proverbs. It's such practical, down-to-earth, everyday wisdom type of teaching. Uh, You don't get into Calvinism. You don't get into covenant theology or dispensationalism or a host of other false doctrines out there. Pretty safe reading, and Mayhew does a pretty good job. It's kind of basic. It's more of a your first introductory read to Proverbs if you've never said uh, studied it, but there is some helpful information there. A second book that I picked up and I've been read a little bit out of is called Jesus the Sage by Ben Witherington. I see Ben Witherington reference quite a bit. I've bought a few of his books through time, and to be honest, I'm not very impressed with Witherington. Uh, one, he doesn't seem to hold a high view of inspiration, and I have a problem with that. Uh, particularly, I just don't I don't see a whole lot of insight. Typically, when he is quoted, the quotation that's given is the the worthwhile time, and it's surrounded by a bunch of junk. 
Uh, I'm not really impressed with Jesus the sage. It's it's also a discussion in part about Proverbs wisdom. He's dealing with a whole bunch of secondary literature uh, from the Middle East, uh, written at the same time as Proverbs. I, I just don't find it helpful personally. I don't I don't recommend it. Uh, another book that I got was called Seriously Dangerous Religion by Ian Proven. That Seriously Dangerous Religion by Ian Proven. It's a very interesting book. It's it's starting out very well. I'll let you know how it goes, but it's kind of an apologetics book. And it's asking the question of why are we here and how are we part of the story of the world. It's It's challenging its readers to think critically about what they believe about their faith, that faith should not be blind, and there is a logical, sensible reason to buy the Bible's explanation of why we are here and where we came from, as opposed to uh, Middle Eastern religions, uh, all the Eastern religions that you can think of, Buddhism, Hinduism, there's, there's one group of people that thinks that all religions are essentially the same, and he's arguing no. All religions are not essentially the same. There are major differences, and you have to test the credibility of each religion. You have other people that are arguing, well, you know, religion is pointless. What we need to do is go back to before religion time, and we need to invest in our earth and learn from our earth. And he's going to argue against that, and he's also going to argue against new atheists. And this is where I have some particular interest, because new atheists are arguing that we're smart enough now to not be dumb and rely on dumb religion, especially Christianity. And Christianity is dangerous, according to New Atheists, because it's teaching people to be dumb and to think non-critically and to not rely on science. And science can lead us into the bright future. In other words, how we learn where we came from and what our purpose in is does not lie in our dumb past, but it lies in our bright future, and science is leading the way. This is led by men like Richard Dawkins. And this book is essentially going to be arguing based on the Old Testament, that the Bible gives us the information we need to understand who we are, why we're here, what our purpose is, and nothing else in the world can do that. It's looking very promising. I'll give you some more feedback as I read further. Okay, our final thing I want to do today, for, before we're done, is to get some listener feedback. I want to get some feedback on the topic of Calvinism. Whether you are pro-Calvinism or anti-Calvinism, I would like to get some feedback from you on what your favorite books are regarding the topic of Calvinism. So, if you're a Calvinist and you think, oh, here's my book, I think this is the best defense of Calvinism that I've ever read, I want to know what the title is and who the author is. Okay? Send me the name of the author and book to christianresearcher at gmail.com. Conversely to that, if you are opposed to Calvinism, like myself, I'll just be upfront with you, I am opposed to Calvinism. I do not buy any of the five points of Calvinism. I'd like to know what you think the strongest book against Calvinism is, or a particular aspect of Calvinism. had a discussion with, with a buddy here recently um, that came up in regarding predestination. I had some good discussion. kind of got to looking into some books again. I pulled a book off my shelf I read a long time ago, but it's been a while, called Elect in the Sun by Robert Shank. Now, by the way, Robert Shank is no relation to Michael Shank, who wrote Muscle and a Shovel. No relation, but uh, Robert Shank was a Baptist who was a Calvinist, and he had difficulty with different aspects of Calvinism, and so he kind of worked his way out of Calvinism. He wrote, his most famous book was called Life in the Sun, which is dealing with the perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved doctrine. And his second book was Elect in the Sun, which is dealing with election or predestination. 
So I pulled that down and I read about 50 pages out of it, the first chapter. And though it has some good material, it's very choppy and it does not flow well. It's written on a kind of an academic lecture type of a level. So it's not super practical for your average reader. Though he does make the point that Ephesians chapter 1 is kind of the battleground where Calvinistic election goes to live and die. And so if you're going to have a discussion with a Calvinist on election and predestination, you better gear up with Ephesians 1. I thought that was really helpful. Um, A book that I've read in the past that I've found helpful on Calvinism, though the language is kind of dated, is The Gospel Plan of Salvation by T.W. Brents. That's a book that you ought to have and read. The concepts are still very much alive and applicable in discussions of Calvinism, though some of the language has changed. Um, I want to give a shout-out to Brother David Griffin and his website, restorationaudiobooks.com. Again, that's David Griffin with restorationaudiobooks.com. He has done an audio recording of the Gospel Plan of Salvation. Top-notch, high-quality really good recording. You ought to go on there and download a copy of it and check out the other old books that he's bringing back and making audio recordings of available for free. They're all free. You don't have to buy anything. He's doing this on his own time with his own equipment, providing a great service, and he's made the Gospel Plan of Salvation available. If you've never read it and you have a commute, when uh, take some time, download it, and listen to the Gospel Plan of Salvation. One other book that I throw out there is God the Redeemer by Jack Cottrell which is also dealing with the concepts of uh, the sovereign God and predestination, how that all interacts together. That's a really good book. And um, I say all that to say I'm interested in Calvinism, and I'd like to hear your feedback. Again, pro and con of the best books on Calvinism. Thanks for tuning in today. I appreciate you listening. I hope that the material was beneficial and interesting to you. If you like it, subscribe to us. We are now live uh, in Apple iTunes the Google Play Store, Stitcher, and you can also find us on podbean.com. Okay, Podbean has an app that you can download to your phone just like iTunes does and Google Play does. We're available on all those major markets. Uh, The Been There, Read That podcast with Nathan Batty. You can find us there, subscribe to us so that you're automatically tied into our feed, and be sure to leave us a comment. If you'll leave us a comment, that really helps us get our exposure out there and possibly get featured as a new podcast in some free promotions. So if you do that, we'd greatly appreciate it. And also share the program with your friends and families who you think might benefit from it. Thanks for listening. Uh, tune in again next week as we'll have another podcast coming at you. Have a great day. God bless. There is our sacrifice. He paid the he paid it all upon the cross, no longer bound by sin or with eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.